Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to another episode of Trashy Divorces. Sunday garbage day. Trash can Sunday. Before we take the garbage out. Yes. Let's do some shout out love. Let's in, do the in, love before we throw it away. In praise of patrons. Is that what you're saying? Who is in our magic Patreon mirror today? It's been a lot of fun it's over a, this week at Patreon. It, it has in the magic mirror. We have Natalie, Sherry, Shelly, Anna, Laura, Satchmo. Great name. John, Kelly, Mary Payne of Pain in the Pod. Of Pain in the Pod. Stay tuned for my story. You get a special little wink, wink, nudge, nudgy, Mary Payne. And Gigi and Lauren. Thank you. Yeah, we cannot thank you enough for your support at Patreon. Okay, so I know that you think... (laughs) The astrology stuff sometimes, Stacey, is bullshit. It's just, I it, it gets, my eyes get a good workout with all the rolling. Okay, so last week, we were lucky enough to have Erica Kelly with us. Yes. Who is awesome. Who, who is, is amazing. Awesome. It was a great episode. We want to welcome any Southern fried true crime crossovers that are tuning into us. We definitely do. We, we hey, we have a body count this week. We really do have a body count this week. <laughs> so thank you for joining us. But I was gifted because this came up on Southern Fried True Crime page. And I just want to make it clear to the world in general that it is not my typical habit mm-hmm. to give out opal rings. Mm. I've had a beautiful opal ring for a long time. And I heard about the October curse. There's an October curse that if you wear opals and you're not born in October the stones will fall out. It's like an unlucky thing. Okay. I have had this ring 20 years. I have worn it exactly all of one time for 45 minutes and I lost an opal. (laughs) So it has been in a jewelry box. Hmm. And as a Leo, I don't really skirt around many Scorpios. They don't come into my, and I have been waiting for the very right person to the ring of power, give that ring to to take hold of the ring of power. And Erica is an October birthday so it worked out. So TLDR, you gave Erica a ring that you can't wear. <laughs> so I know you think my voodoo magic is bullshit, <laughs> but we learned something this week as we were in doing our stories, reading them. Mm-hmm. We have a astrology crossover this week. A little bit. A little bit. We both have air earth combinations. Sandstorm. Sandstorms. Sandstorms. Oh, big sandstorms. You know, if you, uh, if you Google, if you do a Google image search for Nostrology, our graphic pops right up. I'm very, very proud of that. (laughs) Both featured ladies in our stories today are both Geminis Mm -hmm. and George Jones, my featured gentle-ish man, is a Virgo. Sure. And uh, Elvis Aaron Presley, the feature of my story, is a Capricorn. So two unplanned sandstorms in this musical mashup country legend superstar episode. Everybody, this episode is cool. We really, I was so excited to get to kind of go back to Memphis in the storytelling. It. I was just going to write about Elvis and Priscilla, but I realized so much that I didn't know about the the life and career of Elvis Presley and oh my I I love this one. 
love it, love it, love it. And I, of course, knew almost nothing about George Jones and Tammy Wynette. Oh, I learned I mean, a crap ton about yeah. Elvis that I was not aware of. And George and Tammy, man. I, so my story today, I got uh, some really rotten choices in men. <laughs> Lots of marriages and divorces. Like it's eight divorces for the price of one. It really is. Some straight up bad behavior. Maybe there are a few tender mm -hmm. tears, too. It's like country music. It's a country music song. I have an episode of a country music song. Kind of. It's a hella story. So this week, He Stopped Loving Her Today, fantastic country classic by Bobby Braddock and Curly Putman. But there's a whole lot of shaking going on, too, so. Totally. Hey, you ready for uh, Trashy Divorces this week? Let's do this. Let's do it. Good morning, Alicia. Hi, Stacey. We have musical Two hard royalty hitters. this hard week. Hitters. Yeah. We have like, I mean, Americans don't have an aristocracy. Ha ha ha, we do. But uh, these people are... Heavy hitters. These are heavy hitters. Heavy hitters. You ready for my... Uh... Yeah. You got the queen and king of country. Okay. Actually, this week I'm doing something a little, a little, a little different. This one's a dedication. Oh. Dedicating this story out to Mary Payne Gilbert's daddy. Mary Payne was kind enough to interview us on her Pain in the Pod, P-A-Y-N-E, Pain in the Pod podcast. That'll be coming out in a few weeks. And I gave her the secret drop about this episode and I could hear Mary Payne's voice light up and her daddy, Bones, mm -hmm. is a big lover of Tammy Wynette and George Jones. Sure. So this one is for you, Daddy Bones. That's very sweet. This trashy divorce this week. And... I hope that you are listening with Mary Payne and y'all both enjoy it. So I have two all-star country music legends you today. Do. That for a time, together, country magic. They were the first couple of country music. When they got together, they set the world on fire. But they both really did individually set the world on fire before they got together. And they sure would after they went their separate ways. Their love for the music. And their respect for each other as artists really always connected them along with a shared desire that each of them has from childhood that they are going to be a famous country western singer. By God. And that's like a super attainable goal. I mean, every kid. Every kid. <laughs> two kids, you know. Un but these it, ones actually did it. By God, do they ever. Okay. So we're going to go ahead and start today's tale with the possum himself. The possum. The possum. George Glenn Jones. The possum is one of his little nicknames, like beady-eyed little rodent. Great. <laughs> I mean, he does kind of have little beady. looks a little bit like a possum. Okay, we caught a baby possum in Frida Biscatlow's outside yard cat food. Very cute. It was very fucking cute. Eating away the other day. So this whole possum thing, like, yeah... Rabbit animals, but God, they're not a little bit cute, too. You're going to see this with George Jones. Anyway. Possums, I don't think, can carry rabies on the on the subject of rabbit animals. I think. Okay, good. Well, so, less harmless than you think, but they eat ticks bad too. reputation. But they're really, they're God, really they're, handy to have they're around. They're really cute. Well, maybe that's George Jones. <laughs> so he's also going to attain another nickname, uh -huh. No-Show Jones. Oh, but that doesn't happen until a, a little that's later. down the road. Okay. okay. So George. Is born September 12th, 1931, okay. youngest of eight kids. Yikes. Wait, His so he's the baby in a family of... Baby in a family of eight, eight Texas God. family. 
his and he's kind of from this outlaw area of Texas. Like they're they kind of have their own rules and their own pact. If you get away from this area, like it's it's described pretty shadily. Like it's an outlaw outskirt town, maybe eight hundred people, kind of in the outskirts of Texas. Huh. So his dad is hard working, hard drinking. Mama just wants little George to sing in church. Aw. The family gets out of their kind of rough and tumble outlaw town and move up the road a little bit. Family's doing a little bit better, and they get a radio. And George, when he's little, dreams about singing at the Grand Old Opry. He will sit on Saturday nights listening to the Grand Old Opry radio show sure. in between his parents, telling him, like, wake me up if I fall asleep. Right. Like, if Roy Acuff comes on, if, like, any of my favorite people come on, wake me up. Right. Oh, that's super sweet. I don't want to miss them. Yeah. So music is a big deal. Like, not just for this family, but most families in the South. Radio and music, emotion is where Southerners go to in songs. We are not afraid to right. feel any bit of a country tune. It's a feeling. It's a movement. Hymns and spiritual songs are going to become honky-tonk and rockabilly and rhythm and blues and rock and roll. Like, this is a whole other episode, but music is a big deal. It's what I'm trying to root this down into. Sure. And George's mama finally gets him to go to church. We give him a guitar, and George heads on down and plays at Brother Burl Stevens's Baptist Church with Sister Annie. <laughs> Sister Annie teaches George like three chords sure. and some hymns, so he need. is on his way. Yep. He is practicing, he's playing, he's singing with God and along with his heroes, Hank Williams and Roy Acuff. Sure. Okay. Economic prosperity is hitting this area of Texas, and the family does a little bit better and moves to Beaumont. And George, now that he knows three chords, been practicing a little while, Decides to try heading on into town on Sunday because there's nothing to do after church. And uh, busks on the street corner. Comes home with 27 bucks. It's the most money he's ever seen in his life. Like this is late 1940s, like 47, 48. Sure, yeah. A a teenager. That's a decent amount of money. He's like, I am going to do this thing. This is meant to be. Yeah. That was probably like a couple hundred bucks in today's dollars. Like more money is there. Like, whoa. Yeah. So he makeshifts a little recording studio. He's trying to get something going. He gets a little notice locally. And he's dreaming of the dream. But oh, young love. Uh-oh. Gets in the way of ambition for the first time, but nowhere close to the last <laughs> in this story. George meets and marries his first wife, Dorothy. They are together just long enough for Dorothy to get pregnant, for them to split up, and for him to need to find a way to afford child support. Oh, my God. Yeah. So, well, George, hey, good for him stepping up. Yeah, totally stepped up. At the time, I think it was pretty easy to disappear. It's not like the state was going to chase you down. That's it. George joins the military. Oh, wow. And goes overseas. God, there's a there are a lot of parallels. <laughs> yeah, no, it's... Yeah. It, Really, in their ends are not the same between our stories, but they just could by have the so grace of God easily been. Yeah. Okay, so George comes on back from service in 1953, but you have to remember 1953 New Year's Day opens very sadly. It is the death of Hank Williams, oh, who died New Year's Day, dead from heart failure and hard living. So George is devastated by this news overseas. Comes home in 53, he's still playing. He joins up with his new label, right? Because in the early 50s, Everybody hey, had a we, can, we have plastic. 
we can make records. We have studio. Like this is a mm-hmm. radio. It, it yeah. is. Yeah. It's all it's happening. It's fertile ground. Okay. General overall life lesson team. His producers at Starday are like, George, quit imitating Hank Williams and Roy Acuff. We know they're your bro dudes. We like them too. But you got to find your own sound, right. man. And it takes a while. Like, George works on finding his own sound, and he's going to go through a lot of different stages from the early 50s, really for about the next decade. But it takes a while. But George finds his own sound, and now everyone in country music is like, George Jones, that's the sound of country music. Like, if I could just sound like that. Well, and that's the thing. I mean, you put out something original, and, I mean, the whole world takes notice. Right. You can't help but have him. Like, there you go. He's, my, trail, he's trailblazing. My point is, y'all, make your own kind of music. Use your voice. Be you. You're the only one with the voice you got. Do it mm-hmm. like you mean it. Sing like you believe. That's the story. Yeah. Anyway, George heads on up to Memphis, where it's all happening. Memphis! Country music is getting a little knocked out of the way by this rockabilly dude brew, Elvis, who's making his entrance on the scene. And George... Kind of gets into some rockabilly, but it's not his thing. He's embarrassed by it. He gets his first real hit in 1955. Why, baby, why? It's good that he has a hit, because Starday is like, George, come on. Like, his last four records have failed. Yeah, you need to make us some scratch here, or this is just not going to work. Yeah. That's it. But George yeah. has a dream. Sure. And that dream is to be at the Grand Old Opry right. in Nashville. Oh, nice, nice. So he's increasingly in demand as a concert performer. He... Really does learn the ropes. He gets a gig down at Louisiana Hayride. Sure. He's meeting and playing with this Elvis. features in my story, too, yeah. With Johnny yeah. Cash. Wow. Johnny Cash actually has some interesting things to say about George Jones and how Johnny Cash talks about how he learned how to laugh through the pain by George Jones. And Johnny's like, how, when your pain is self-inflicted like George's was, you got to learn how to lighten up. Let me go ahead and talk about, even at this stage in his life, what kind of passes. He's fucking possum, man. Right. What kind of passes he's given. So here's George Jones. He is an opener for like Buck Owens. Buck Owens, it, Buck Owens is the headliner. The headliner. The reason mm-hmm. people are coming to see the show. And George keeps talking to him like, man, why don't you let me go on and close some nights? Like, oh, why yeah. don't you open and I close? Yeah. How Buck about Owens that? is like, uh, did you see the sign that said now appearing Buck Owens? Like, that's not the way it works, yeah. buddy. So one night George decides like, all right, I just, dude, you really should let me close. All right. If you're not going to, I just want to let you know that. My show tonight's going to knock your socks off. You're not going to want to miss it, because after you see my opening act tonight, you're not going to want to go on stage. So George goes out and does his his opening act, which is all of Buck Owens's headline act. Oh, shit. In the opening act. Oh, my God. So he plays Buck Owens's full set. Entire set. Jesus And Buck Owens is on the side of the stage just like, he motherfucker. Right? And, like, George Jones walks off. He's like, told you. <laughs> yeah. He gets away. Like, you still here. Was he fired from the no. team? No. Wow. So he's got a, he must have a Be charm. like charming AF, right? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> All right. So he's 
uh, learning some lessons, taking some knocks on the road, running his own scene. And he finally, after a few years, gets invited to the Grand Ole Opry mm. to play. Right. This is a huge, huge, deal. huge, big huge deal. deal in country music. George Jones, like my dream is coming true, goes on stage singing his big hit, bombs it. Nobody knows his big hit. Like really, Grand Ole Opry's like, mm, okay, well, like maybe next time. Tough room, man. Tough room. And George heads on back to the country music jubilee, kind of like the Louisiana Hayride, like another thing. To round out the 50s, he tours all through the 60s. This is probably when the Buck Owens thing is. Music is his life. And his voice is deepening, and he's developing this presence on stage like he begins really singing from the heart. He is on the road with people who are verifiable legends today who then just were breaking out of their Young guys, little yeah. dinosaur shells back then. Yeah, yeah. It's It really is amazing to do stories from this time period because... Yeah. These are, I mean, some of these people have passed, some are just, you know, the venerable old men and women of, but yeah, it's when they were young and just, just setting the world on fire. So George pretty much like after a decade plus of touring, he's ready to hang his hat at home. Life on the road sucks. You you don't eat, you don't sleep, you're drugging, you're drinking, like it's tough. He wants to come on home and he heads back. To his second wife and two boys that have just been chilling while he's been on the road for the longest time. He's looking for his next hits. George is going to find those hits by 1967. And he's going to need an opening act for his tour. And the next magical part of his mystery tour. But we're going to leave George here for right now. In the narrative Trashy Divorces Depot train station. Okay. Waiting for his uh, Virgo Earth train to pick back up again because we got a new train pulling in the station. Yep, yep. Gemini Air. Let's meet Virginia Wynette Pugh. She's not Tammy yet. Virginia is born near Tremont, Mississippi, May 5th, 1942. She's the oldest child. Her dad is a farmer and apparently this like amazing self-taught musician. Never had a lesson. He can play every instrument known to man. He's just one of those sure. kinds of people. Sure. Sadly, her daddy dies of a brain tumor at the age of 26 before she's even one. Oh, my God. So there's a similarity. Oh, my God. There's so many parallels mm-hmm. here. Coming up with your story. The tumor, which did cause him to lose his sight before he dies, he's sitting. There's a family story, and he's sitting with Tammy, who's just a few months old, like two weeks before he dies. So she's like eight months And he's pressing her fingers on the keys of the piano that they have. And he makes Virginia's mama promise, if she has any musical talent, you will do whatever it takes to get her lessons so she can pursue this Mm -hmm. and promote it. you got to 100% promote and encourage this. After dad dies, after Hollis dies, mom moves back in with her parents. And eventually, she heads on up to Memphis to work in the defense plant during World War II. Okay. So she leaves Virginia on the Mississippi farm with her mama and daddy and her younger sister, who's about five years older than Virginia. So it's like Virginia has an older sister, but her grandparents live on a real live working cotton and corn farm. No indoor toilets, no running water. Old school. It is Mississippi Mm -hmm. field lands. Virginia is described as a happy child, super strong-willed, musical, 
lively. Turns out Virginia does have some musical talent and begins playing all the instruments her daddy leaves her. And because this talent is identified, Mama does send down money every month when she can for Virginia to take lessons. Very cool. Very cool. The teacher she's going to for lessons is like, you're wasting your money. This kid learns it before I'm done teaching it to her. Like, Virginia's super talented. Yeah, she's got the ear. Seen two ages for this, seven or nine. But at some point, Virginia and her grandparents' farm is given a choice. Hey, you can stay in the house and help cook for the field hands, or you can go and pick cotton. It's up to you. She's like, I think I'll go pick cotton. So this is where she really does get this. She is going to be a country music star. And in the fields, because it's the repetitive work and the sound of rhythm, she is learning hymns and spirituals and all the bluegrass, all these deep-seated sort Mm -hmm. of rooted-in-the-southern-music tradition. Also at this point, George Jones is like 11 years older than her. So he's getting a little play. So he's becoming famous. So she's hearing his music as well. And as a girl... She falls in love with him. He's her radio star yeah, idol. Yeah, they don't know each other yet. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Virginia's really good at basketball. Her granddad makes her wear pants under her shorts, her basketball shorts. Very modest. And she's like, can I just be like the rest of my team, please? So they get elastic to sew in the bottom of her shorts. So they like it's that kind of family. Sure. Uh, she enters lots of talent competitions. She's really good at singing. She never wins. She never places. Never. Oh, interesting. But, but she still shows up. She's going to do it. She has dreamed of being a star. And she's... She's going to do it. Working to that ambition from my fourth grade talent show that I suck in, but it doesn't matter. Right. She may not have the prettiest voice. But it sure is the loudest. (laughs) As a teenager, Virginia moves back in with mom. Mom and dad, mom and new stepdad come back to town. Virginia moves back in. And wowza, Virginia and mama are both really strong-willed. And she's a teenager. You know it's going to happen. It's going to go well. Good girls don't want to wait that long. Young love strikes again. Let me just preface this here. Virginia doesn't always have the best taste in men. In fact, she has really, really, really rotten taste in men. Candidate number one. Oh. Eupel Bird. I'm sorry. Can you spell that? E-U-P-L-E. Eupel. Eupel Bird. Okay. Is the first of her bad decisions. Well, with a name like that. Mama is firmly against the marriage to Eupel. He's older than she is by quite a few years. Oh. Not like significantly, but. Like like, five or six or something. uh, Maybe eight. Yeah. A little bit older. Virginia is a senior in high school. Virginia doesn't care. She hates where she is so bad. You can't tell me I'm not gonna. Mary's old Eupel, and if she thought she was poor before, now she's really poor. Oh, no. I don't even know what to call the type of domicile they live in. They have cardboard for insulation. She is cooking on an open fire for food. Eupel's a bootlegger because it's the only job he can keep. Sure. Their first child, a daughter, is born six months after they marry. Yikes. Another daughter is born like Irish twin, quick secession after that. So they're, I mean, they're in a legit shack. 
a legit shack. In rural Mississippi. And Virginia married to get away from Mama, and now she is in a whole nother world of shit. But our gal has some grit, and she decides she's going to go to beauty school and get her beauty school license. And this is the most amazing. Are you ready for the most amazing part? Yes. She gets her license, which is how she's going to support herself through sure. the next coming decade. Like, right. she's she is determined to better herself. Yeah, it sounds like Yupel's not much of a breadwinner, and they've got kids now. So. Yupel's yeah. about to be out the door. Okay. But even after she becomes the first lady of country music, the queen of country, CMAs, millions and millions, fucking Tammy Wynette does not keep that beauty license current her entire life just in case she needed something to fall back on. Oh, my God. That is such a, that's such a, like, woman thing to do is, like, I mean, the queen of country can also do your hair, <laughs> but also has a, has a plan B because always a plan. She mm-hmm. is yeah. so resourceful yeah. in 1963. The birds move on down to Memphis. They have a seedy apartment. Virginia gets a job as a bartender. She doesn't drink like it's against, she had elastic in her fucking basketball shorts. Right. Like it is against every part of their upbringing. But the place that she's slinging beers does let her get on stage and sing every once in a while. Nice. So again, she is mm-hmm. all like, I am in a shit show. I got two kids, a crap husband, but I do get to sing every once in a while. So even though I'm taking care of kids, working at the beauty salon, right. doing this at night, like she's making it. I saw Coyote Ugly. I know how this goes. <laughs> place does let her sing. She's working on her dream, and she gets pregnant again. Oh, no. Ooh. I mean, like, congratulations. I mean, yay. And one day during this pregnancy, she comes into her house, and she thinks that she sees a corpse, like a dead man, on her floor. And I'm not, I don't, we don't know what happened, but the end result of what happened is she grabs her two kids and sort of has a nervous breakdown drives around for like a day and a half until they find her. She is institutionalized and given 12 shock treatments. Whoa. I know, right? Whoa. So she maybe had a psychotic break? I know you haven't read the book, but it reminds me of Vivi in Yaya Sisterhood. Like the parallels are the same. Like I get it. She is married in a shit marriage with a crap husband two kids and another one on the way in less than three years. And she's probably fucking cold. You have cardboard for, you'll give you were well, they've moved to, into Memphis now. So it's maybe a slight improvement. Well, and her kids talk about, she was always in a cycle of depression somewhere, but I think like it gets to her, but once she recovers, like again, she always relies on this. I'm going to be a star. Right. I got to perform. And she, Gets herself there and tells Yupa, like, it's done. It's over. I want a divorce. Here's wow. a fun okay. little karma update for you. Cool. That is awesome. Ha. We live for these. So old Yupal <laughs> never did support Virginia's ambition to become a country singer. And according to Tammy, as he as she drove away with the kids in tow on this, I'm done lead foot out of town he yells at her dream on baby like you're never gonna make it so years later old Yupel shows up at one of her shows as she's signing autographs and asks for one 
and she signs it to him. Dream on, baby. Oh. Yeah. Love her. Wow. That's got to feel good. I love her. So Tammy moves it on down to Birmingham. She's got a job in a salon where she delivers child number three prematurely. Shock, trauma, instant. Like, I don't know. Right? There are a lot of complications Mm -hmm. with her third daughter. And the child ends up contracting spinal meningitis. Wow. Ends up making it. Virginia calls her her miracle baby. Yeah. And Virginia's still like, I got this dream of stardom, and I have this drive to fulfill my talent, and I want it, but now I also have $6,000 worth of hospital bills that are on my neck for keeping my kid alive. (sighs) So she gets a job at a salon and ends up, during this, auditioning for a local TV program that starts at 5 a.m. Because she can go do that at 5 a.m., still sing, get to her job at the salon at 7 Exactly. Auditions. They love her. She starts to get two or three hundred letters a week at the station. Really? Why don't you let that girl sing more? She can't sing more because she has to leave to go work her next gig. Right? Hustling. They pay her 30 bucks a week. Her rent is $12. So things are getting not easy, but a little bit more comfortable. And I'm singing. I'm working. She's hustling two gigs. She's taking care of three kids, dealing with a pretty full-blown depression, which is going to escalate through the years. Somebody said about her, which I found poignant, which is going to come back to George. She was always afraid of something she could never quite name. Hmm. Hold on to that because it's going to be important at the end. Yeah. Anyway, in Birmingham, hustling on her off days in the summertime, she is knocking on doors in Nashville. Everyone doesn't care. She's determined. And so many rejections. Like, girl singers, not a thing. You maybe were a song in an opening act, but a good voice or a good song, like early 60s, just wasn't going to get you there if you were a girl. Seven major labels turn her down. Mm-hmm. In 1966, she doesn't care. She's like, you know what? I'm following my dream. I'm moving to Nashville. She is 23 years old with three children under the age of five. Wow. That is bold. That is just good for her. Meet bad decision man candidate number two, Don Chappelle, another songwriter. Okay. They marry. She later says in an interview, like, I needed help with the kids. I was tired. He was a songwriter. He was going to get me. Like, it wasn't a love match per se. Yeah, he's at least not going to be like, dream on, baby. Yeah, you know? well, he's, he's going to, like, right? You yeah. find the opposite. Yeah. It's Elizabeth Taylor. You find the opposite of what you are what you just left. But he ends up really unsuccessful in his own music career mm-hmm. and latches onto her music career. Like putting his name before hers on the bus, like it's a duo act, but it's not. Oh, yeah. She is traveling with kids driving the bus like uh, i don't know he's getting all into controlling her business and that's going to be a problem soon she's got a really loud voice she can really sing but she doesn't really have a whole lot of presence she's super shy like super restrictive how like you you know mm-hmm. she's determined internally but you're not seeing her outside transformation yet right she doesn't care she goes to see Not as legendary as he will be one day, record producer Billy Sherrill. And she's like, man, you got to hear my voice. You got to listen to my songs. Because she's singing and writing, which is 
practically unheard of for women at the time. Hmm. I mean, it's yeah. a big thing if it's a country western male singer, but women, right? No, you're. Re- it's the Nashville machine. Yeah, exactly. They're writing out songs exactly. every hour. You're Still, not writing your own shit. Yeah, to this day. I mean, pl- plenty of exactly. musicians write their own shit, but yeah, but there's a whole songwriting industry up there. Exactly. So you got to hear my voice. Listen to my songs. And he thinks they're great, but he's like, man, you're kind of terrified. You're not, I can see how you could get there, but you're not quite there yet. Find me the right song. Find me the right song and come on back to me. Right. But two weeks later, he calls her. I may have found this song for you. It's a song called Apartment Number Nine. It is her first hit. Gets her noticed. Nice. But here's the next thing. Your name is Wynette Bird. You cannot be named Wynette Bird. Like, we got to do something different about this. So, cute as a button, Debbie Reynolds, uh-huh. Trashy Divorces, Gold Star Heroine, yep. is starring in the Tammy movies with her little blonde ponytail. Okay. And that's how Virginia wears her hair. And a la, welcome to the world, Tammy, Tammy Wynette. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. So, let's get back to the Trashy Divorces Depot. Platform number intersection. Right, right. Where we've left George Jones. Just needing to crank out some hits. Going to need an opening act. And Tammy is now cracking out some hits. And what do you know? George Jones hears her. She doesn't sound like all the other girls. She's got a different voice. And he's kind of hooked by the voice that he hears. And what do the people want? The people want Tammy on tour. So George Jones is like, hey, you want to go on tour? And she's like, fuck yeah, let's hit the road. So 1967, Tammy Wynette is had a transformation. The studio is done. Her looks, her ponytail. She is touring with the poster sure. on her wall. like Scooped up by Nashville and living the dream in the loving arms of country living music. Living the dream. On tour, loves the travel. First, the kids were there. Then they're not. Then the husband's there, gets a little bit more controlling. And she's been in love with George Jones for years. Right. Now she gets to ride around with him and hang out with him every day. Play music with him. And which is play music. Gotta be their favorite thing. So in a show one night, the guy she's supposed to sing like one of her most famous duets with gets snitty and bails on her. And George Jones... For the first time, but not the last time. Strides on out. Come on stage to save her. He doesn't know the song. Aw. And he's and he looks over, he's like, What's the first line? She gives him the first line and there he sings it away and she sings and he ends up doing the entire duet and Tammy is freaking out, like, I can't even believe this is happening. I yeah. can't believe this is happening. Yeah. But he has rescued her. It's on. And they talk after the show and start to do some musical stuff together. They get a little closer, but it is all about like George Jones is like, once we started singing together, it was like their two voices are really, really magical when it comes to two voices and playing off each other. Just, but it's a musical connection. Two kids, stars have wanted to be stars their voices sound great together you get the all this pent-up energy and everything that's building and it has to go somewhere right 
Okay. I'll tell you where it's going to go. Okay. Where's you it ready? Go? Yeah. Tell Ooh. me. Tell me. Tell me. So one night, Tammy invites George to dinner. They're back at home in Nashville. Or George and their manager happens to stop by. I don't know. The two stories vary in details to the incident in question, but the incident in question always is the same story. Tell me. Tell me. Hubby number two, Mm -hmm. bad decision man number two, controlling jerk Don, is getting nasty. He is drunk. He is calling Tammy some inappropriate names. Yikes. And George Jones, like who in is... in front of... Oh, yeah. In George front of George Jones. Jones who's sitting at the dining room table. And who is now a champion of Tammy Wynette. Oh, 100% mm-hmm. on board with the Tammy train. Yeah. Right? Like, George is like, this is the most amazing musician. Well, yeah. I've, right. Way, way to show your ass there, hubby. Oh, no. It gets worse. It gets worse. So, hubby's... Don is drunk. George is drunk. Tammy's drunk. Oh. Everybody's a little drunk. Oh, that makes everything better. Makes everything better. So, hubby number two, kind of calling Tammy some names that George does not agree with. And he's like, hey, bleep, 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 probably. <laughs> Don't ever talk to her like that. And Don's like, what are you going to do about it? She's my wife. George Jones stands up and lifts the dining room table with him tosses it upside down to where it shatters the heavy plate glass window in the dining room of the home Dang. and says, she's not going to be your wife for long, bucko. I love her. And I think she may be in love with me too. And turns to Tammy and says, is that right? And Tammy says, yes. I am. Oh, my God. They each. What a superhero moment. Oh, my God. They each go into a bedroom. Like, each have carrying one kid. The other one's out in tow. They get in his burgundy Cadillac and drive off. And she never looks back. And their love affair begins. Oh, my God. Isn't that. That is like the fantasy of. How Come something like that me. would play out. Yeah, I, that is, that doesn't even sound like real life. Um, It's amazing. That is scripted. That's beautiful. So like he was her knight in shining armor on stage. Like yep. he is her knight in cowboy boots and a burgundy Cadillac. Yeah. Take me away. Hey, that's Calgon. what you get for dreaming on, baby. Is that right? So they're all about each other and all about the music. So she's in the process of divorcing the husband. They're together. In 1967, Tammy has four number one hits. One of them, D-I-O-V-R-C-E, our Trashy Divorces <laughs> theme song. Yeah. She's writing all these songs about the you know acceptance of a woman's lot and the pain that goes along with it. She is just killing it. Co-writes Stand By Your Man in 15 Minutes with Bobby Braddock. And all of that controversy about Stand By Your Man from the bra burners in the 70s to Hillary Clinton will be on Trashy Tidbits this week. No time for it right now. Sure. Tammy's writing anthems for women of the times, and she is rewarded for this. She wins Country Music Awards Female Vocalist of the Year three years running, 1968, 1969, and 1970. And she's in love with George. Sure. George pays a crap ton of money to break his contract and record with her. Now they are both recording with Billy Sherrill. 
Nashville tongues are wagging and the public loves all of it. And they are loving each other and the music they're making together. And in February of 1969, they marry. And third time's the charm. Is it? At least for a while. Uh. (laughs) (laughs) The first couple of country is on top. George buys Tammy a home as a wedding gift in the Oak Hill area of Nashville called First Lady Acres. Even after Tammy finds legendary fame as a singer, she keeps a crystal bowl full of cotton in the foyer of her home to remind herself of her days picking cotton in the cotton field. Yep. Like, just like she keeps her beauty license, she keeps a bowl of cotton around as well. He adopts her daughters. They have another child together. They are like the Burton and Taylor of the country world. Lots of hits together, riding high. But let's go ahead and talk about what everyone knows is there. Old Possum, kind of a bad boy. It's well known how much he likes to drink, but Tammy, she's not so worried. She knows he has some issues. He only drinks because he's so unhappy. But now that she's around, she utters the (sighs) famous last four words, which are... I can fix him. Yeah, don't. It's like a trashy divorce's red flag waving. I can fix him, which she does for a little while. Like the kid helps. He cleans up his act and he does a while as like the family man routine. But the dream is about to get crushed by not always your best friends, drugs and alcohol. Oh. Okay, so I get it. Both of these two have grown up hard. Hard situations have achieved their dream. They are battling with their own private Idaho's individually. Addiction is going to come for them both. Tammy, who has medical problems, after a hysterectomy, but is always kind of ill, gets hooked on pills. But the doctor told me to, so the prescription makes it fine. Yep. Recurring theme. Yep. George has always really liked to drink. He's just drinking a lot more of what he likes to drink. And when he drinks, he gets really out of control, like literally cannot be handled. He's a wild man. So, oh, also, George discovers the wonders of cocaine. Oh, yay. And he really likes it. Every story better. Super good. So they're both spiraling and not in a great way. And George's addictions are really in the forefront. So Tammy is spending a lot of her time and energy working on trying to help him not keeping liquor in the house. Right. What do all of his neighbors do? Hide liquor like a fucking Easter egg hunt around their property. Cause he's George Jones. Cause he's George Jones. Want, yeah. You're on team George. Yeah. Tammy's like, all right, well if I take all the keys away. Oh my God. So people are literally just like putting Jack Daniels in their trees and stuff that he can. Yeah. Want. Oh my God. <laughs> I mean, so Tammy takes all the keys and George, after a while, like people in addiction get fucking crafty. Yeah. George is like, oh, yes. Climbs out the window and gets into his Cub Cadet 10 horsepower lawnmower to drive himself down to the bar. Uh, he, I'm sorry. He takes his riding lawnmower Correct. to the bar. Yep. Wow. That is. Can you imagine <laughs> driving down the road in Nashville, and there's George Jones on his little... I don't know. Like, here's the value of adulthood. 
Tammy one night drags him in from the driveway just barely and wakes up with a double barreled shotgun in her face a few hours later. Whoa. Like this is no domestic bliss. Like yeah. it is yeah. country music. First couple of country off public loves it. No, it's not. Off, the public doesn't know it's off the rails. Oh, but it's off the rails. But it is off the rails. And Tammy's like, I got to get the kids out of this. Yeah. This is a disaster. I am giving advice to other women about their husbands and my marriage is a mess. Their work together is suffering. Their studio sessions are horrible. She will stay after he leaves to overdub on. A, it, he's incoherent. Like everything is privately hitting the skids. And after seven years of standing by her man, it's over. Yeah, divorce is in the works by 1975. They're done. Now, I'm going to talk about some fun things. George says in a later interview, <laughs> he doesn't blame Tammy. There was a lack of understanding between us. She did not try to understand me or help me and just took the quick way out. What a whiny baby. What a dick move. This is on the flip side of his sobriety, but double-barreled shotgun. And a bunch dude. of young children in the house. No, Took the sorry. quick way out. No, you take the safe way out. Yep. You take the... You get your kids to safety. Yep. And Gone. yourself, obviously. But I mean, Jesus Christ, what a piece of crap. All right. So our girl Tammy, still maybe queen of country on the outside. Lots of insecurities, even though determined. Post-breakup, what do I do? She's scared to go on the road without him. Who will come see her? She nearly dies from a drug overdose Yikes. during this time. She just wants to go to sleep. Like she's, there's a lot spinning there, Yeah, but you'd never see it spinning because she is a star. She mm. is achieving her stardom dream. Right. She kind of pulls it back together, starts dating Burt Reynolds, biggest, furriest film star of very, the 1970s. Very furry. People loved body hair in the 70s. I don't it's know why. Weird thing. And it seems like Tammy's really happy dating Burt Reynolds, living her best life. But the fear, whatever that fear is that she can't name, her Dementor, gets her again. And she somehow ends up, like, overnight married to a local businessman. Knowing ahead of time it's not going to work out, they split after 44 days. Yikes. Spin the bad decision wheel. Good Lord. Tammy, like, I don't think she feels secure without, like, she... Maybe is never secure in her own self because bad decision number five is waiting to happen. George Ritchie has been in love with her for years, too afraid it would destroy her friendship, never said anything. Like the number of times she was married is the thing that she is the most embarrassed about. She marries George Ritchie in 1978 and they are going to stay married until her death. 20 years of marriage. Okay. Is it happy? He says... It's true love. Her quest was over. She found her guy. Her children and friends say she just picked him wrong. She never had a chance to pick anything else. He gained control, took control, and kept control. And by this point, she was so embarrassed about the number of times she's been married. Dude. She was just going to stick with it. But that let me give you a little dish. so sad. October. So they marry 1978. October of 78. Tammy ends up going to the ER, claiming she was assaulted by a mass kidnap by a masked attacker, kidnapped, and left 80 miles south of Nashville. She is documented with bruises and a broken cheekbone. One of her kids later says this was not a random attacker, it was George Ritchie. 
He declines the allegation. Wait, so she basically made up a stranger danger attack to cover up domestic violence? Wow. Yep. That. Oof. Okay, so. And that kind of shit can end up so bad. Like, well, uh, I mean, that's. She's apparently, you know, not afraid to go to ER, so hang tight. Yeah. She's going to keep taking some hits through the years. Her addiction amps up when doctors really stop giving her pills. And then she would feign injury Mm. on tour to get them from local hospitals who didn't know her. Like, I need to go to the ER. Yeah. And when ERs started getting suspicious about this, she would literally hurt herself, like walk off the stage in order to go to the ER to get pills. Jeez. She has a jewelry line. She makes some hits. Uh, it's always and forever with her going to be about the music. She was successful before Possum. She will be again. But by 1991, she's had 17 major operations on her stomach. Whoa. So did this start with a hysterectomy? You mentioned that earlier. Is that? I don't know. Like, she's hospitalized, like, 26 times over the course of her life. Like, Yikes. Yeah. But hold on. She's, by 1991, had 17 major operations, but she's still touring nonstop. Right. She's using breathing machines on the bus, then going out and singing. She is unstoppable. Performing keeps her alive. Right. For all of you old schoolers out there, uh, 1992, Tammy does collaborate with the British band KLF for their number one hit in 22 countries, Justified and Ancient. If you're hearing that somewhere in the back of your mind, you're not alone. You're going to laugh when you see it. It's amazing, Camp. Tammy has some other kind of successes. She starts a little group called Honky Tonk Angels with her friends Dolly Parton and Loretta Lynn. They released an album in 93, and like you wonder where the idea of Trio came from with Dolly, Linda, and Emmy Lou. And this is her life, like performing surgery. During one of these bouts, she is still estranged from George. This is late 80s. It's been like 10 years since they've really talked. And she's unconscious. Like, she's in a coma. And I think Dolly calls George. Like, dude, you need to... Get on over yeah, here. Yeah, this is bad, yeah. And he comes over, and everyone's kind of preparing for the worst. And George holds her hand and tells her, like, you need to get better. We need to do another album together. And when she wakes up, she's like, we need to call George. Like, I know he was here. Let's do this album. Like, they have an emotional, like, reunion tour. Not in love, but right, right. both looking for... Oh, but, How to blend their music yeah, magic. Kindred spirits, yeah. She is really fragile, though. They literally have to carry her on stage for this tour. Like, things aren't good. Tammy's body finally gives up in 1998 at the age of 55. Jesus, that's young. Control over her estate goes to husband number five, George Ritchie. The family, there's some nefariousness about this. Like, the family does want the body to be exhumed. There's some suspicions about the medication she was given. It's never really proven. The family loses the fight for control. She had some bad choices in men and letting them run things. And it may not have turned out the way she planned, but she sure did achieve her dream. Mm -hmm. And she paved the way for women writers and singers and songwriters and provided some real inspiration and guidance to, I don't know, legions of women. And then she was real and she got to live her dream and just determined in grit. And she's a badass. 
I'm like, Tammy Wynette. Yeah. I didn't know. She was to me like your Elizabeth Taylor, like very one dimensional. Like, right. oh yeah, a c- bunch of country hits. Yeah. Some trashy National Enquirer stuff. Whatevs. Yeah, I didn't know she had such medical struggles. Um, that was an amazing story. Yeah. So what happened with uh, with old George? Yeah, Taking on back old, to George. Old possum. Oh, God. So after the divorce, George is alone again and happy and self-destructive. Riding high. He's not happy. He's devastated. Like, this breaks him. Sure. And he's going to give new meaning to the phrase, down and out. He's drinking and drinking some more. Doesn't care. And cocaine is his new favorite. Well, I mean, it seems like everybody loves it once they try it. Jesus. So, uh... They're just tales of him getting in fights, his friends trying to restrain him. I mean, has he heard of Fleetwood Mac? Jesus. No. So a record executive ends up coming to like whatever tour he's got and gets on his bus. And he's like, what's that? And one of his guys is like, oh, that's the bullet hole. George tried to shoot the driver the other night. Jesus. He is out of control pills cocaine alcohol trouble he is always in this cycle of self-abuse and this is just a pack of country boys trying to have a good time and he is really running on the rails but in spite of all the things that he does to destroy himself literally because he's i'm gonna go into the future 45 minutes elvis post-divorce like i am trying to ruin myself yeah yeah i have given up he can always stroll out on stage and knock you the fuck out when he manages to show up on stage this is when he gets the name Mm. no show jones yeah he will just disappear for days on end and turn up in some weird out of the way joint 12 states away jesus like nobody knows so he's all right he He's way, way off. Oh, yeah. I don't know. Crystal Gale says she did a whole tour with him and he never showed up once. (laughs) (laughs) Like, he loses 150 pounds. He is a dead man walking, bottoming out, loses his money, hits dry up. He's living out of his car. He's arrested for DUI. Like, everyone's unhappy with him. Executives himself, but his fans, old possum. Sure. He gains a little comeback. Because he always does. Right. In the year 1980, with the song, He Stopped Loving Her Today. Ah. This is possibly the saddest Mm -hmm. country song of all time. Written by Bobby Braddock and Curly Putman. Tells the story of a friend who has never given up on his love. He keeps old letters and photos from back in the day and hangs on to the hope that she would come back again. And as all country music does, and it hits you in all the feels... The song reaches its peak in the chorus, revealing that he indeed stopped loving her because he's dead. And the woman does return for his funeral. Right. And this is a line of the song. First Mm -hmm. first time I'd seen him smile in years. He's smiling because he's in his coffin. And that's the true crime adjacent. (laughs) Okay. So uh, here's George Jones in 1980 after all of this addiction. And you can hear him. The song is not about Tammy. But here's George saying, like, he stopped loving her today. Like, he's just never, ever going to stop loving Tammy for the rest of time. It makes a comeback for him, which makes him spin out a thousand times harder. And again, no matter how badly he behaves, people are still giving him a pass. Yeah. 
He meets who will become his fourth and forever wife, Nancy Sepavaldo, on a blind date in 1981. She's a 34-year-old divorcee from Louisiana. She cleans up his finances, keeps his dealers away. George Jones says no one ever fell harder for a girl than he did for her. Wow. But he's still not sober. Here's a fun bit. In a part of his cocaine madness, he, he has living inside of his brain an old man and a dog, and they get in arguments with each other. Um, okay. So George Jones in the middle will be moderating the argument between the old man, the old man and, and the junkyard dog. Dog. You know what? I have not cocaine done is cocaine. Bad, kids. So I don't know if that's just the kind of thing that happens when you do cocaine a lot I, for years. Okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Moving out of George Jones's weird brain. <laughs> but he can still always record. Mm-hmm. And nails his recording. Like, this is his jam. Rest of the world be damned. I'm going to get fucked up. But what is the blind date? Nancy really likes him. What does she say? I can fix him? My God. I'd heard the horror story, she says. Yeah, I bet. But I'm of the opinion don't believe it until you see it. I ended up seeing plenty of it, but we just clicked. I saw a lot of good in a man who was being totally destroyed. And he's pretty destroyed. Like, at this point, he knows he needs to change. Yeah. He credits Nancy with saving his life. She is his soulmate. He says the powerful love of one woman made all the difference. So apparently Tammy took the easy way out, but Nancy's going to stick around. They marry in 1983, celebrate by having their wedding dinner at the Burger King. Whatever floats your boat. It's it's royalty though. In it's March of nineteen eighty, befitting the king of country music. <laughs> there, there you go. I wonder if he got crowns. Yeah. <laughs> Remember the crowns you got at Burger King when you were yeah, little? Yeah, I do. Okay. Yeah. So in March of nineteen eighty four in Birmingham, at the age of fifty two, George Jones performs his first sober show since the early seventies. <sighs> I okay. Now think about this. Remember Tammy running from something that she could never quite name. Sure. So UPI interviews him in June of 84. This is what George Jones says. All my life, it seems like I've been running from something. If I knew what it was, maybe I could run in the right direction. Like what a, like, I really do think the two of them were tied in such a very, Tammy and George tied in such a very special way that they really did have that in common. They're always both afraid of that invisible something. Nancy Jones does clean up his act, and Jones actually begins making up a lot of the dates that he'd missed for free, back to promoters from the No-Show Jones days. Wow. He writes a song with Glenn Martin that pokes fun of himself called No-Show Jones. Like, he's kind of coming around. In 1996, though, he releases a memoir where he says he sometimes has a glass of wine before dinner, because Nancy supposedly sobered Mm -hmm. him up. Sure. I maybe have wine before dinner. I'll drink a beer occasionally. But I don't squirm in my seat fighting the urge for another drink. Perhaps I'm not a true alcoholic in the modern sense of the word. Perhaps I was just an old-fashioned drunk. Three years later in March, George is involved in an accident where he crashes his SUV near his house. He is 
pleading drunk. guilty to okay. drunk driving charges. He's yeah. hospitalized for two weeks. His condition is highly serious. And he later says that wreck is what made up his mind and put the fear of God into him. He quit everything at that point. So his career continues through the next four decades. Like he does find the love of his life, his angel, sobers up, and for the next four decades gets albums, collaborations, awards, accolades. He wins CMA's Living Legend Award in 1987, Stratton Stuff. He is in Hank Williams Jr.'s. All my rowdy friends are coming over tonight. Video right on his fucking riding lawnmower. Oh God! There's George, like, because the premise is all my friends oh, yeah. are coming. So it's every yep. country rock and roll person, and there's George Jones on his riding lawnmower like, waving, like I'm making story. my yep. Yep. way to the party. People love him. I mean, I caught a performance of George Jones in like 2009, and so he's old. He's so old at this point. And he's kind of an old guy, kind of on the wings of the stage, and they announce his name, and he just... Transforms. It is about the performance, just like it was with Tammy. He's still owning it. So Nancy and George are married until George's passing in 2013 at the age of 81. Wow. The funeral is something to see. Country music funerals are just heartbreaking. But Travis Tritt comes out and recalls a conversation that he had had with Chris Christopherson, where they were talking about who would have thought that George Jones would have outlived Tammy Wynette and by decades. decades. And Chris Christopherson says, without Nancy, he wouldn't have. Like, she is George's angel. Like, so they really do pay homage to her sitting in the front row of the Mm -hmm. funeral. And there's Alan Jackson strides out on stage and starts he stopped loving her today and like this is the day that george jones i know um stopped loving nancy because it is the day that it, it'll just make you cry hmm. that is the trashy divorce of george jones and tammy wynette with a lot of other back there were like a lot of bonus trashy divorces in there too that was dude the flipping of the table and like t- let's get out of here Boom. darling I'm for you and you're for me. Let's go. I mean, but like, hey, I'm in, lo- I'm in love with you and I think you may be in love with me. Is that right? Yep. Yep, it is. Yeah. No, that's incredible. Great story. I know that went a little long, but there was a lot packed in that. Yeah. Mary Payne and Bones, I hope y'all enjoyed it. <sighs> Stick around for the trash can rating. You ready to take a break and wipe our little tears? Yeah. Come back with the king of rock and roll. A whole lot of shaking going on. Some. Hey, Trash Pandas. When you need a brain break from your day, let me recommend the game June's Journey for Android and iPhone. It's a hidden object mystery game where you are solving a murder, uncovering family secrets, and, I don't know, exposing official corruption? All in an extremely stylish 1920s setting. Every scene takes you deeper into the mystery and introduces you to an expansive cast of characters as June Parker explores the questions surrounding her sister's apparent murder-suicide at the family's beachfront estate. Add your own elements to the island, from lush gardens to gorgeous new buildings. This story has so many twists and turns. Right now, we are on a global journey attempting to rescue June's niece, Virginia. 
It's a great combo of gameplay. It's a memory puzzle, a design project, an intriguing storyline with genuinely fabulous art. When you want to let your mind wander, relax into this glorious 1920s murder mystery and get lost in the fun. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, I'm Chris Gethard, and I'm very excited to tell you about Beautiful Anonymous, a podcast where I talk to random people on the phone. I tweet out a phone number, thousands of people try to call, I talk to one of them, they stay anonymous, I can't hang up, that's all the rules. I never know what's going to happen. We get serious ones. I've talked with meth dealers on their way to prison. I've talked to people who survived mass shootings. Crazy funny ones. I talked to a guy with a goose laugh, somebody who dresses up as a pirate on the weekends. I never know what's going to happen. It's a great show. Subscribe today, Beautiful Anonymous. Hi, I'm Chris Gethard, and I'm very excited to tell you about Beautiful Anonymous, a podcast where I talk to random people on the phone. I tweet out a phone number, thousands of people try to call, I talk to one of them, they stay anonymous, I can't hang up, that's all the rules. I never know what's going to happen. We get serious ones. I've talked with meth dealers on their way to prison. I've talked to people who survived mass shootings. Crazy funny ones. I talked to a guy with a goose laugh, somebody who dresses up as a pirate on the weekends. I never know what's going to happen. It's a great show. Subscribe today, Beautiful Anonymous. Stacy, you've got a Alicia. I got legend. I got the king of the rock second, and roll. The king of rock and roll. The king. I can't even wait for the story. The king. I'm gonna. I'm gonna admit here that Elvis Presley is a, a figure I've always found sort of comical, just because I was born in '76. Like by the time I was aware of who he was, he had he already become the, long gone. Yeah, he was dead. Yeah, but he had also just become a parody of himself he'd become a parody of himself and this is partly his own fault because he surrounded himself with like horrible sycophants well sycophants and his manager colonel tom parker was just a total grifter and turned his career into trash wow yeah so tell me the story okay so the king dude elvis aaron presley was born just poor as hell in Tupelo, Mississippi in 1935, January 8th, 1935. Okay. He's a Capricorn. Okay. He was one of twins, except that his older brother, who was born 35 minutes before him, was still born, which, you know, uh. is still a huge issue in the South. Like, we just have not fixed our maternal mortality rate or our infant mortality no, rate. No, we haven't. Right. This, this was, was 1935? This was the Great Depression. Good when, times. You know. Yeah. Anyway, you can Google Georgia maternal mortality crisis if you want to be really upset. No, it's a crisis. Yeah, it, if you want to be really upset. Yeah. I encourage it. Okay. They lived in a two-room house. His grandfather built this house for them. Then his dad got popped for check fraud. Oh. Was sentenced to three years. Only Yikes. served eight months, but, you know, the family lost the house, ended up living with relatives in Tupelo. Just, you know, they were on food assistance... It's just, it's, they were, they were as poor, poor as you can, they were as poor as you can be, but you know, I mean, they were good churchgoers. He got into music through the church, which it sounds like is the, they common, all do. Mm -hmm. 
when he was 10 or 11, his parents were able to save up a little money and buy him a guitar for his birthday. Aww. So it'd be the only guitar that he owned until 1954. So like all of his early work, including his first and only appearance at the Grand Ole Opry, were played on a child-sized guitar. It's amazing. I mean, he was just dirt poor until he was a rock star. Like the value of frugality, like Tammy Wynette keeping cotton in her house. There you go. I'm still going to keep my beauty beauty license. license. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Wow. So he played a guitar for like nine years, like, um yeah he like, he made his breakthrough on a kid's guitar oh yeah oh yeah when he was 13 stroke of luck for him and the world to be completely honest okay the family you know dad is now an ex-con in tupelo which is not a big town so dad's so, out of prison yeah dad's out of jail but i think he's kind of persona like who's gonna hire an ex-con right so they moved him they moved to memphis oh it's all happening in memphis right. they head up the road to memphis which Mm -hmm. is again i cannot express and i think this was like present in the ike and tina turner story as well what memphis as a person who grew up in the south but not in tennessee i grew up in north alabama and memphis i've only been to and through like a couple of times but it really has this mystique to me because I think the only place comparable is New Orleans in terms of where you get this sort of ferment of cultural change. And I guess the Mississippi River cuts through there. Mm-hmm. So so it, it is a port city in a way. But anyway, I Memphis just is, in my mind, a magical place in the 1950s. Fairly. Segregated as fuck. Like, like, everything that is bad is bad, but there there was something magical happening. So... Anyway, young shout Elvis, out Memphis. Shout out Memphis. Woo! Young Elvis Presley arrives at the age of thirteen. You know, goes to high school there. They spend about a year just in rooming, like renting room situations, like super. It sounds like they were pretty much always like one night away from homeless. Yikes! Again, this family as poor just as you can went be. through it. So after about a year, they were able to get into a public housing complex called Lauderdale Courts. Oh, good. And this apartment was the largest home they had ever lived in. And Elvis is a teenager? Yeah, wow. he's like 14. And um, only kid. He doesn't have any brothers or sisters. No, it's just kid. the three of them. He's super okay. close to his parents, too, like especially his mom. Like, wow. He's, okay. He got called a mama's boy a lot as a as a kid in Tupelo. At Lauderdale Courts, he falls in with a bunch of neighbors around his own age, some of whom play music, and so four or five of them would get together and play music. And sure. Like it Start really... a band. Yeah, there was like a guy who's a couple years older who really... Those are the other famous four... That's the other famous four-word <laughs> Let's saying. Start Let's band. start a band. Let's open a bar. <laughs> Let's, Let's start, start a band. band. I, can I can fix, fix him. him. <laughs> um, so yeah, like they'd get together, play music. There was a guy a couple years older who really, I think was like, yeah, I'll give you guitar lessons. Like, sure. that's cool. I'll like, teach you three chords. Yeah, and he really had an ear for it. He hung out in... So at the time, record stores had listening booths. So, you you know, you wouldn't just buy a record and walk home with it. And he would just go and listen to music all day. Like, he was... He'd sneak into the black clubs on Beale Street. Wow. Probably not at 13 or 14. But as he got older, he was voraciously consuming music. Fantastic. Mm-hmm. Anyway, by his junior year in high school, he had grown out of sideburns. He was styling his hair with Vaseline and rose oil. So he must have smelled. Yeah. Fantastic. Pretty great. There was a student music show at the high school late in his junior year. 
and Elvis overcomes his nerves, played music. He says of that, I wasn't popular in school. I failed music. It's the only thing I ever failed. And then they entered me in this talent show. When I came on stage, I heard people kind of rumbling and whispering and so forth because nobody knew I even sang. It was amazing how popular I became after that. Wow. Yeah. Gained some popularity with the ladies. He really, yeah, he suddenly was, uh, he was a thing. But he'd been very hesitant to play outside of his little friend group back at the complex. So a few months later, starting to feel a little more confident, he walks into Sun Records in downtown Memphis, where Sam Phillips Hanging out. is busily reinventing music. Absolutely. Basically. He had a plan to record a couple songs for like an acetate record for his mom. Sure. It's going to be a present. Anyway, so Sam Phillips is there and, you know, this high school kid comes in and sings a couple songs and Sam Phillips has an ear. Like he, there's a specific thing that I think he just sort of intuited was happening he was a he was from Muscle Shoals, Alabama. He had a background in radio and sure. a radio. And keep in mind, like the world was segregated, the right. South was segregated at this time. The radio station he had worked at in Alabama was open format, meaning they didn't ca- like they would play white artists, black artists. Like Fantastic. it was all good. Well, and it's all it is all happening. This is the beginning of every it, movement of yeah everything yeah. I mean, yeah, that Memphis, 1950, it's midnight. That's your, that's your drop me in midnight in Memphis moment. Yeah. Sam Phillips, like back to the Ike Turner story, Sam Phillips had recorded his record, uh, Rocket 88, which is why they regarded as the first rock and roll album. That was in 1951. So yeah. Wow. Two, three years later and walks Elvis Presley, who is, you know, not yet Elvis Presley, but he was in the right place at the right time. And Sam Phillips was in the right place at the right time. Just a remarkable coincidence, to be honest. So what happens? Elvis comes in and records his... Records his thing for his mom. And Aww. everybody takes note that this kid's got a, a voice. He's got a certain kind of voice. His delivery... Like, they take note. They don't call him right back, but they take note. He comes in again sometime later to do, like, another little recording for his mom. Like They run into each other. And at some point, Sam Phillips is like, hey, why don't you... I've got a bass player and a guitar player over there, and I, I like your voice. Why don't you sit down with them? You guys work something up, and we'll do a session one night. It's about a year later. It's okay. July 54. So they spend hours playing various things, and it's awful, and it sucks, and it's terrible. Oh, no. And they're about to give it up. Like, there's just no magic happening. Oh, no. And Elvis just picks up his... Child size guitar, guitar, and just starts playing this 1946 blues song called "That's All Right" by Arthur Big Boy Crudup. It's a great song. The and he's jumping around. He's Elvising for the first time. Like he is just one of the other musicians was like he was just acting a fool, and so I jumped on the bass and I started acting like just it's a moving fun. Sam Phillips pokes his head out of the booth is like. What are you doing? And they're like, I don't know we what don't we're doing. We don't know what we're doing. He tells them to back up, start over, Do it and again. keep doing it. <laughs> so oh, my God. He records it, gets it to a DJ at a local radio station. When it hits the airwaves, the phones light up. People are sending telegrams into the radio station asking Whoa. who this singer is. Where is more music by the singer? So Elvis is eventually you know, brought to the radio station to be interviewed. Probably, I'm guessing, that day or the next day. And he's shy. He's, you know, like 
You know, of, radio is wildfire in the South yeah. at this point. Yeah. Like that's, you don't have like, TVs are not in every home. You've got radio and it is the common connection between yeah. the people. So sign of the times, they made him like specifically they asked him what high school he attended because the schools were still segregated. Oh. And so to demonstrate that he was in fact white because so many listeners, because he, he sounds black, like he had a really black sound, which is what Sam Phillips had been looking for was a right. white musician who could bring black music to white audiences because white audiences would not accept black musician. Like segregation sucks, dude. And sucks. so Brown v. Board of Education had been decided in May of that year, but like, you know, Elvis went to segregated schools. Everybody in Tennessee and went to Mississippi yeah, at that time. To, yeah. Just speaking of trashy. Uh, okay. So even more fun. This is a single record at the time had an A side and a B side. Sure. And one of my very favorite genres of internet videos is mm-hmm. when overall wearing Cat videos. beard having moonshine swilling bluegrass bands cover a famous non-bluegrass song like one of my favorites is there's a bluegrass cover of metallica's enter sandman out there it just makes me happy you're so adorable i'm so adorable so that is sort of the reverse of what elvis did for his b-side of that's all right so bill monroe it's funny when i started to write this i started to say he took the bluegrass standard blue moon of kentucky but at the time, it wasn't a blue. It was it was, a, a it was ten years old. Bill yeah. Monroe was perfectly active. It so crazy time machine. Anyway, so he takes Bill Monroe's "Blue Moon of Kentucky," which is just a bluegrass song, and he turns it into a rockabilly song. Oh wow! And like nails it. And so Sam Phillips is just in heaven now. Like this kid is golden. And so he like slaps together the single, puts it out. This launches Elvis's career. So they book live shows and Elvis is as a performer, like it takes him a while to get super confident about it, but he is constantly testing stuff like the leg shake, the hip wiggle, the, right. all of those things. And like, basically if the audience reacts, he keeps it. If they don't, it's in the show. He just keeps on trying new stuff. And so this is how, because he's playing constantly. He's like, developing his chops as a performer. Yes. So in October 1954, Elvis Presley arrives at Nashville's Grand Ole Opry. Oh, he's going to get his big chance. He is going to step onto the stage and be embraced and be a by hit. the gatekeepers be number, of country number one music country. and pulled in close sure. and held tight in the bosom of it's country. It's totally going to happen. No, the oh, audience is no. polite. Ooh. They're cool. On. Um, a on chilly Elvis Presley. It was a little, little chilly. The manager tells Sam Phillips that Elvis is not a good fit. For he's the, a little too for the con- Opry. He's, he's a little oh. too extra for the Grand Old Opry. <laughs> yeah, and I, I do think because in the way that George Jones and Tammy Wynette were pulled into the loving arms of the country music establishment, and it sounds like their careers were run in a pretty professional way that kept them focused on music that right right elvis wasn't there was no there was no rock and roll establishment to, to embrace, embrace him. him so he ends he up building it with colonel tom parker uh, grifter of grifters who really can we just give him his own trash can rating at the end just yeah. for okay great i'll tell you more about him too He's, perfect tom parker's a weird dude so fortunately there was an alternative to the opry down in shreveport 
Oh, yeah. This is where the Louisiana Louisiana Hayride where George Jones also was playing with Johnny Cash and all that. So the Louisiana Hayride was a radio, well, I'm sure it was a live show, but it was broadcast to 198 radio stations in 28 states. So, yeah, this was, it had reach, right? And again, radio at the time in rural America was, it was how you, how you got the world in your home. So the Hayride was really a much more raucous scene than the Opry and welcomed a big variety of styles than the Opry would ever have imagined. So Elvis performs at the Hayride, and they sign him to a one-year contract of every Saturday night he's going to play the Hayride. Oh, wow. During the week, he's touring. He's heading back to Memphis to record with Sam Phillips. His success posed a problem for music writers, for white music writers, and a little bit with radio stations, because he was, Elvis was really, he was just race mixing in music. Country stations wouldn't play him because he sounded black. And R&B stations wouldn't play him because he sounded hillbilly. Oh, wow. And so he had this really, and like, writers were really struggling with this, like, I mean, he's got like some country stuff happening, but also R&B, and it's just a weird blend. Because... He was using music in a way that really just was a frontal assault on... But can you imagine, like, being the first guy to do it and be so stuck in that restrictive... Well, the first white guy, because Ike Turner already did this. <laughs> True. Thank you. Thank you. Gentle correction you noted. Know, and, and I don't think... I'm sure there were plenty sure. of black bands who were pioneering rock and roll that, you know, the white establishment was not writing about because... Wow. They were okay, go, go, go. Tell okay. me more. Okay. So, uh, Elvis himself was incredibly candid about, like, his appropriation of, but also his reverence for black music. In 1956, he told the Charlotte Observer, The colored folks been singing it and playing it just like I'm doing now, man, for more years than I know. They played it like that in the shanties and juke joints, and nobody paid it no mind till I goose it up. I got it from them. Down in Tupelo, Mississippi, I used to hear old Arthur Crudup bang his box the way I do now. And I said, if I ever got to the place I could feel all old Arthur felt, I'd be a music man like nobody ever saw. So unfortunately, around the time of the Louisiana Hayride, like 54, 55, is when Tom Parker comes in. And to his credit, Tom Parker was able to take regionally famous Elvis Presley and pitch him to... RCA Victor Records, okay. which is one of the largest record companies in the world. He okay. really was able to... Branch him to his next move. Yeah, the the people in Elvis's orbit at the time probably could not have launched him the way that Parker did. So it's a shame that Parker just wasn't a better human over time. So Elvis's debut record for RCA comes out on March 23rd, 1956, just okay. titled Elvis Presley. This thing spends 10 weeks at the top of the Billboard charts. Wow. It is the first rock and roll album ever to hit number one. It was the first rock and roll album to sell a million copies. Holy cats. And Parker had a really clear idea of what he could do with this kid and like what he could make this kid into. So he decides that the thing to do is put Elvis on all of the TV shows he can get him on. Like Solomon, right. Girl, all of this. Double-edged sword, though, in the 1950s with this kid who's swinging. He's really sexy Can't young man who's swinging still. his hips around. So he goes on the Milton Berle show 
This is where he earned the moniker Elvis the Pelvis, Ooh. which he hated so much. <laughs> just so much. And the press was outraged. I mean, he, there was just fury that he would be up there being sexy in front of impressionable teenage girls. But it's cool because nobody watched it, right? <laughs> Right. Uh, so, yes, the ratings when Elvis came on TV were unbelievable. And so Booker's, however furious elements of the public were, the public could not look away. So Booker's kept bringing him on. So September 9, 1956, he appears on the venerable Ed Sullivan show. Okay. Oh. This episode was historic. It was watched by 60 million television viewers representing 82.6% of the entire television audience in the United States. 83%. 83%. Barney Stinson Barney is so Stinson. happy. 83% of American viewers tuned into Elvis. I mean, it's amazing. That's am- yeah. So uh, uh, there were Crazy. three networks at the time. So let's, let's get, but still. No, there were not a lot of options, yeah. but still 83%. That's nuts. Yeah. So his shows were just, I mean, it was screaming crowds. It was like the energy was just unbelievable and like venues would hire additional security to try to keep people safe and sound like people would throw stuff on the stage and he'd throw it back and they would faint like it was just it was that i mean it was beetlemania before the beatles i I think a couple years before the beatles colonel parker he's he's like all right we're gonna get you out to hollywood kid we're gonna match we're gonna make you of course we need to do that so love me tender Comes out in November of 56. His second album had come out in October. Super successful. Here's the thing about the movies Elvis did. This is a really awful thing. So Elvis was just immediately a superstar. So he would make these movies that critics were like, God damn, this is terrible. And like this, he would (laughs) sing the soundtracks. And critics were like, God damn, this is terrible. But they would hit the public... You couldn't not go see the new Elvis movie. You couldn't not go buy the new soundtrack with Elvis singing. Right. So, like, they were hugely... These low-budget movies just turned a very tidy profit, which Colonel Parker had a big stake in Mm. uh, going into his pocket. So, for any of my peeps out there who right now are singing Elvis Went to Hollywood by the Counting Crows, that's when (laughs) everything went wrong. It's a very good cultural statement. It's a great Counting Crows song. I'll throw it on the website. So, here's some numbers for Elvis for 1956 because it it is hard to convey quite what, like, the the scale of this thing is. So, Elvis merchandise, not record sales, but merchandise. T-shirts, I'm guessing. I don't know what else they sold at the time. That accounted for $22 million in sales Whoa. in 1956. In today's dollars, that is $206 million. In like mer- Elvis lunchboxes, Elvis socks. Yeah. It- yeah. Holy yeah. smokes. Just, I mean, and again, this kid was... $200 million in merch in a year. In merch. He's 21 years old. Sweet He Lord. was born in desperate poverty. Okay, so Billboard noted that he had placed more songs in the top 100 in 1956 alone in one year than any other artist since records were charted. Oh, my God. Yeah. That's insane. Yeah. For RCA, which is a big, big record company, probably one of the biggest in the world, Elvis accounted for more than 50% of their single sales in 1956. All of their other artists accounted for about half. Wow. 
I mean, it's remarkable. So in 57, I mean, the trend continued. The problem now was that when he toured, there was always a risk that riots would break out at his shows. Oh, like, Lord. People were unstoppable. I don't, he jazzed them up. And so in Vancouver, fans destroyed the stage after his show ended. <laughs> uh, <laughs> one writer said something like, the problem with going to see Elvis live is you may not make it out alive. Oh, no. <laughs> Okay, so Elvis also gets a draft notice that year. No. Right, because I guess the Korean conflict was to war. happening. And Colonel Parker convinces him that a stint in the service as just a regular GI will really do a lot for his image. And a lot of the outrage about, you know, sexy, hip-swinging Elvis, Elvis the pelvis, all that, they can really Let's tamp Let's get him in, make him a soldier, clean up his act a little. Yep. Okay. And the government gave him the option of doing selective service where he would play for troops, but still, you know, not, not be in the service, I guess, right. and maintain his career. That was what he wanted to do. He, he was afraid if he went away for two years that he'd be forgotten, right? Which is not what happened. The record company is like, cool, we've got so much material recorded. We can just keep on churning out Elvis hits the whole time. You're, you're fine. And Parker, like they, they made all these backup plans. Like, oh, wow. He was able to defer his draft for three or four months because he was finishing another movie, another crappy movie. He signs up and they send him to Germany after basic training. Okay. Two big things happen to Elvis Presley when dun, he gets dun, to dun. Germany. First, and perhaps perhaps most significantly, he was introduced to amphetamines by oh. his sergeant so that he could stay awake during maneuvers. Oh, no. uh, Elvis was very anti-drug and not a big drinker. But he did have this thing where, like, well, a doctor prescribed it, so it's okay. Oh, doctor feel good yeah, will he, not make you feel good. He had a doctor feel good, yeah. Yikes. Um, the second thing. Amphetamines are some scary shit. Yeah, well, I mean, it's okay because later he found, you know, downers to, he found tranquilizers oh, to no. counteract. It, it was pretty bad pretty fast, I think. This is how you get a dog and an old man talking to you in your brain. That's the truth. That is the truth. Okay. So the second major thing that happened to Elvis in Germany is that he was introduced to Priscilla Beaulieu. Okay. You're nodding, but let's be real. She was 14 years old when they met. He was 24. Oh. It was about 10 years between them. So he was, yeah, 23, 24. So apparently when they met, he immediately reverted to his shy, awkward teenage self. Oh. Um, but I get the feeling that they ended up like making out all night pretty hot and heavy. She was super late getting home and oh. her parents were furious. Like they were so upset. They wanted her to never see him again. Okay, so hold, she's on base with her parents? Yeah, her dad is Air Force and... Let me share a little Priscilla background Okay, here. perfect. Okay. So Priscilla's story is kind of, it has some weird parallels to Elvis's. So Elvis was a twin whose brother was stillborn, right? Right. So I assume that he knew that his whole life. So Priscilla also had a significant loss early in her life that she was maybe not aware of until she was a little bit older. So her mom, Anne, had married U.S. Navy aviator James Wagner who was her father, except he was killed in a plane crash when she was oh, like six no. months old. No one told her. Oh. Like she didn't know, but you have to wonder. So like, anyway, mom remarries. 
Paul Beaulieu. I hope I'm pronouncing Beaulieu. that approximately correct. Yeah, Beaulieu adopted Priscilla. She was, he was the only father that she ever knew. But when she was like nine or 10, she came across like a Ooh, box of keepsakes. I have some questions, mom. Right. Mom was like, yeah, but don't tell your siblings because that'll just screw up our family cohesion. It was really like people kept secrets and apparently what they let a... their 14 year olds date 24. Okay. So there were like a couple other siblings. <laughs> this part of the story, I I feel like I feel like Priscilla's family was just a little off. So she comes home late. Mom and dad are like, you can never see that boy again, right? Yeah. Well, the another element is that. Um, so I was an army brat, so I actually know um, how it goes on base. Yeah, my dad. We made our last army move when I was seven, and my dad left the service a few years after that. So, but a lot of kids just move until they're 18 just move every two to three years and that's what priscilla's life had been every time they got settled somewhere he would get a new posting and they'd move and this gets really i was seven but my brother is three years older so you know my parents were looking forward to like he's gonna be in high school soon we can't ask him to reest like he needs the chance to make lifelong friends like which which he did you know it's great right. all worked out well they were living in Texas when he got stationed to Wiesbaden, Germany, which I think my dad actually did training there when I was a kid. I didn't My go. dad was born there. Oh, look at that. In Wiesbaden. Yeah. Yep. So Priscilla was super crushed. You know, she just, every time she'd get settled somewhere and make friends, it was like, hey, now we're moving again. Just sucks. And she was kind of shy. Also, troublingly... It seems that current scholarship suggests that Elvis really had a thing for 14-year-old girls throughout his adult life. Oh. Although he also had a weird obsession with their technical virginity, so he would not engage in penetrative sex with them for the most part, except maybe this one time. Wait. I don't know, dude. Yeah. So he just has like cuddle parties? Makeout parties? So I read about one story where he was having sex, I think, with a 15-year-old fan after uh, no, after a show. No, no, And the condom breaks. No. And he freaks out because, you know, appropriately, I guess. But then inappropriately, all he can think to do is drive her to the local hospital, kick her out of the car at the door to the ER, and tells her to go inside and have them perform a douche on her. Oh, no. That's... Icky. Okay. Icky. Icky. And he apparently, I don't know, she is, let's just say Priscilla is not the only 14-year-old he dated in his adult life. Oh, God. Um, and in fact, he may have dated one after they divorce years down the road. Ooh. So, icky. Okay. But, you know, he's Elvis Presley. He's the most famous person in the world. He has decided that Priscilla Beaulieu is amazing he's stuck in germany for another six months and he just launches a charm offensive on her parents so that he can keep dating her a 14 year old and they're like they eventually relent he swears he will never keep her out late again and they let their 14 year old daughter date none of this is appropriate none of of it's okay none of it's all right you're looking at me but I'm, not, I'm I mean, looking because I'm expecting you to like scream or pull your hair no, out no, or something. None of this, this is, is appropriate. Unbelievable. Except, I guess it's not. Like we were, we were talking about this earlier. 
the parents grew up through the Great Depression when I'm sure everyone was just expected to work in whatever capacity they could from whatever age they could start to keep the family from starving to death. Well, on the flip side of that, women are, you're supposed to get married and have kids. True. So, you know, customs and mores of the time, it was nothing for, you know, people in Tudor England to get married when they were 14. Like, it, sure. It, sure. It is terribly inappropriate. Not inappropriate, maybe on a world civilization scale, but yes, it's totally inappropriate. It's super weird. Hashtag. Ick. Ick. Okay. So, anyway, all this eventually returns back to the United States. His two-year stint in the Army is over, March 1960, which leaves, again, this was not secret. The media knew this 14-year-old girl is left fending off interview requests from reporters worldwide. It was public knowledge. It's just so strange to think that this recently, this was okay. I just... All right, I'm going to I'm going to move on because I think we've established 14 years old. They stayed in touch by phone. I think she thought like, okay, well, that was that was very interesting and I will never see him again. But in 19 like they stayed in touch. He kept taking her calls and he kept I guess returning her calls. 1962, she convinces her parents to let her uh-uh. fly to the United nope. States. Nope. Los Angeles to spend 2 weeks with Elvis. Sure, why not? She was 17. Oh, my God. They let her come back to visit him for Christmas. (laughs) And finally, in uh, early 1963, they're like, fine, if you want to move to Memphis, fine. You can't live with Elvis. You can live with Elvis's father and stepmom down the street. And you have to attend the Immaculate Conception High School until you graduate in June, young lady. And so Priscilla, bull you. Moves to Memphis. Oh, my God. By May, she's living at Graceland. I mean, obviously. And, uh, you know, he'd purchased this big mansion in 57. So, yeah, her parents sort of win a How Not to Be a Parent award. Good for them. Cheers. Gold star from us at Trashy Divorces. I don't know why. I sent my teenage daughter to Elvis Presley, and all I got was this lousy T-shirt. Right. And, like, her trip to see him in L.A., that's the first time that she took amphetamines and sleeping pills to try to keep up with his lifestyle. Oh, geez. So just everything that you would worry about in that situation is absolutely what So every happening. fear you have as a parent uh-huh. is actually happening. Yep, yep, Fantastic. Yep. Yeah, I mean, again, like, he wasn't, he wasn't smoking dope, but... <laughs> And there's your consolation prize. All right. So presumably after she's graduated from high school, I don't know. There's so much ick here. Priscilla really wanted to travel with Elvis, who was routinely in L.A. making like three movies a year, right? Because Colonel Parker has absolutely set up his career now that he's sort of not even a musician. I liked L.A. when I visited. Let me go back there again. That was a lot of fun. Yeah, that would be great. And Elvis keeps telling her like, no, no. I am so busy when I'm out there, like, I couldn't even spend time with you. Like, just hang out here in Memphis, which is just a fucking awful excuse. Like, okay, she's 17, 18. She can find stuff to do in Well, that's LA, probably the problem buddy. in his brain. No, the problem in his brain was that he was sleeping with all of his co-stars when oh, he was in no. L.A. making the movies. And well. he did not want her around for that. But, you know, rumors would hit the press from time to time, and she'd confront him, and he would be like, baby, 
no, it's just the studios put those rumors out to promote my movies. That's all. <sighs> and maybe, maybe that worked for a while, but I don't, I don't think it worked forever. I don't know. At the end of 66, Elvis finally proposes to Priscilla. Okay. They have been together for seven years. Oh, my Lord. Yeah. So it's speculated that the reason that Elvis finally proposed to Priscilla is that her father was threatening to have him arrested for transporting a minor across state lines for sexual purposes from those earlier trips to see him. Oh, my God. The uh, (laughs) Colonel Parker is like, oh, shit, Uh, your contract with RCA has a morals clause. And if he comes after you, buddy, you're done. You lose everything. Everything. You movie career is gone. Your music career is gone. Why don't you get married? And he sets it up. Elvis was super unhappy. This part of the story does not make a ton of sense to me, but like he was apparently weeping in front, like with his, with his cook at his house. Like he was really unhappy to be getting married. She said that they were completely fine just living together. Like it wasn't a priority for either of them to get married, but you know, as a social thing just living together at the time was not acceptable also like apparently again they were not having like penetrative sex they were having all kinds of other fun things that they were doing i am very confused there were apparently a lot of sexual hang-ups in elvis's life and in his relationship with priscilla so i don't you know i'm just gonna let that be i'm just gonna put that out there I have so many questions. This is going to be a hell of a trashy tidbits this week. I also have a lot of... I have questions, but they seem so personal. I don't want to deep dive to find out more. Yeah. Okay. So they marry in a small ceremony in Las Vegas on May 1st, 1967. And the wedding itself was a complete fiasco. Oh. Colonel Parker stage managed the whole thing. Which meant that a bunch of people who had been close to Elvis his whole life, basically, were not allowed to attend. Oh. No. And, like, this created big... Like, a lot of his friends didn't forgive him for years. Or, like, they had flown out special with their families to be at his wedding because he had personally invited them. And then Parker's like, yeah, you can't. You're not You're, you're not, not invited. invited. Yeah. So... Oh, my God. Just awful. So they have a short honeymoon in Palm Springs. And then they spend three weeks at a private ranch in Mississippi that they owned, that Elvis owned, whatever. Well, that sounds nice. It was nice. And it was, like, Priscilla... You know, she had moved into Graceland while it was, it's full of staff, right? There's maids, there's a cook, there's people. There there are people to do stuff for Elvis. Um, they go to this ranch and none of those people are there. And oh, she can cook for her husband. Nice. Yeah, she can clean up the house. She can, yeah, she can just be domestic and normal. She and, nests. Yes. And it seems like it was very, it was a nice break. It was a nice three-week break except that she basically instantly... Third week is the charm. <laughs> she was pregnant. Ooh. Instantly. She Ooh. she gave birth to Lisa Marie Presley on February 1st, 1968, which is exactly nine months from the day of their wedding. Wow. Yeah. And she was not happy. Like, they both were like, oh, fuck. Like, they just didn't mean to start having kids, you know, on day that one. That quickly. So, I mean, they talked about abortion, but decided that they could not live with themselves... Lisa Marie is their only child. Mm-hmm. Elvis was really unhappy professionally at this point in his career because Parker had created this like assembly line of shitty movies. 
with shitty soundtracks that Elvis just had to keep making and they'd put them out and the public would eat them up until the public stopped eating them up. That happened in 1967. Oh. And like at that point, his career was, he was just a joke. Like to music fans, to movie fans, like there was nothing he was doing that had any depth or authenticity. The, he was, the soundtracks were, you know, being written by just like hack songwriters and he was, it was just schlock and he was just churning it out year in, year out. It was gross. He had not played a live show since 1961. Oh, wow. So six years. He was a rock star who had not played a music show in six years. He hadn't been, he hadn't done a television appearance since 1960 when he got back from the army. Like this Parker just had him stuck in this loop because it was really profitable, but there was no creative so he's unfulfilled in his career Completely. and his marriage. Completely. Okay. Yeah. Uh, between 1956 and 1972, he starred in 33 films. Wow. Two of which, the last two were documentaries. So, but yeah, 31 of these like Drecky. Crap Hollywood movies. A little bit about Colonel Parker. So we understand the type of person that we're talking about. Con man, right? Ooh, grifter's going to grift. Con man, yep. He told people he was from West Virginia, but in fact, he was born and raised in the Netherlands. He like got a job with a shipping company as a young man. And when they made port in, I don't know, New York, New Jersey, he jumped ship. And oh. that is, he was an illegal immigrant to the United States of America. Okay. The reason that it is thought that he did this is because he was implicated in a murder in his hometown what? in the Netherlands. True crime adjacent. This has never been proven. But he never held a U.S. passport, even though, like, in 1940, they changed the law, which would have allowed him to get one. Is this why Elvis didn't ever tour internationally? This is why Elvis never toured internationally. He wanted to. Oh, my God. Elvis desperately wanted to. Because Colonel Parker's on the fucking lamb. Colonel Parker can't leave the country. Oh, my God. Elvis played, like, three shows in Canada in his career. And I don't know how the border was back then, but I know until fairly recently, you could cross with just your driver's license or maybe parker stayed on the other side like i don't know i mean the actual occupied part of canada is pretty close to the u.s border for the most part (laughs) wow yeah so he never held a u.s passport never allowed elvis to do shows overseas and his contracts with elvis got greedier and greedier over time elvis was either too lazy too disinterested or too strung out to read the contracts and by the time elvis died parker was basically taking 50 percent of his earnings 50 percent yeah Yep. Wow. No. Yeah. That can't be so good. The movie Clambake and the soundtrack for the movie Clambake come out in 67 and bomb. And RCA flips out. RCA is like, what the, f- like. This has worked 30 other times. Yeah. This is, and also, this is our biggest star. This is the biggest star there is. Like, so. Parker negotiates with NBC for what comes to be known as the 68 Comeback Special, which is an hour-long musical performance. This aired in December. And Colonel Parker, always the maker of bad ideas, pictured it as a, like, a long set of Christmas songs by Elvis. Ah, how sweet in December. The people at NBC are like, yeah, that's not gonna, that's not what we're gonna do here. And so they put together this, like, this powerhouse performance 
It's an hour-long show. It was the highest-rated program on NBC that season. 42% of the viewing public tuned in. Whoa. And it reestablished Elvis as as a superstar. Like, he is a superstar. It re- like, it rebuilt his credibility. Creepy AF, but a superstar. <laughs> yeah, it just it rebuilt his credibility instantly. It was so strange. Like, critics at the time were just like, how does he do this? Like, how can this guy just reinvent himself like that? That's crazy. But he did. He is liberated. I mean, Elvis is back and he is so happy. He could not be happier. He swears to his friends he will never sing another song he does not believe in. He, like, hits the studio. They release from Elvis in Memphis in 1969. It wasn't like he hadn't released a record in eight years. It was like he had always been making music of the moment the whole time. I mean, it was just, it was incredible. So the International Hotel in Las Vegas books him for a 57-show engagement in four weeks that summer. Wow. This leads to a five-year contract where he will play every February and August I think for four weeks or something, and that's got a million dollar salary attached to it. That's a lot of, it's a lot of dough. It's a lot of, it's a lot of clam bake. Hmm. Um, once again, Elvis constantly on the move, recording, touring, just out in the world, Elvising. Priscilla is stuck at home raising their daughter. I think she was living in L.A. because they divorced in L.A., not in Tennessee. In 68 or 69, she starts taking dance lessons, right? Well, sure. I'm a little bored. Want to get out of the house? Yeah. And I mean, she's young and like, whatever. She has an affair with the instructor. Oh, no. You know, and let's keep in mind, like, Elvis is sleeping with whomever he wants. Like, he's Elvis. He's sleeping around. Like, it's fine. In 71, he's got an actual girlfriend and uh, gets her pregnant. (gasps) He does not know this, but she ends up having an abortion Oh my. Like, I don't think she told him about the pregnancy or the abortion, but things were serious enough that he was like, maybe I'll move you into Graceland. I'm pretty sure me and Priscilla are over. Oh, Lord. In 72. Okay, sorry, I got to throw this in. Elvis was a crazy karate fanatic. Yeah, karate. Okay, that's where the white jumpsuits came from. It was like based on like the karate. Anyway, throw some jewels on it. So Priscilla is like trying to bond with Elvis and like share in something he's interested in. So she starts taking karate lessons oh, no. from an instructor that Elvis recommends. Sure. A guy named Mike. Oh. Who becomes her boyfriend. Yeah. <laughs> this was the final straw for their marriage. She said later that Elvis had a hang up about sleeping with women who had children. So basically Nine months into their marriage, when Lisa Marie was born. She was done. That's kind of when it dried up. Well, it seemed like he was done initially. Like, what's funny is Colonel Parker promoted the fuck out of this. Like, what a love story. No, she's 14. They never wanted to get married anyway. They had a thoroughly unhappy marriage. So, of course, like, how how do you expect an outcome? But what a lie in a ponytail. Like, I watched something with her, and it's like, Oh, the Cinderella story. No, it's... I'm rolling my eyes. I... Yeah, because mm. it's... Anyway, they separated in February 72. And the following year, on Elvis's 38th birthday, which kind of sucks, he went to court and filed for divorce because 
the address of the person filing for divorce at the time would be a matter of public record. Yeah, well, that's kind of stand up. He right, wants to keep. So wanted to make sure, yeah, okay. Priscilla and Lisa Marie's address was private. Perfect. Um, so cool. Like, they stayed close. He was wrecked by this. St- like, it needed to happen. They were not good together, but he was just wrecked. Like, this is, I think, where his drug use really just. Do you think maybe it's his own like self-fulfilling prophecy? Like I didn't want to get married. Like you've lost a twin. You have no permanent. Like there's something like twins have a really. I don't know if you've known any twins, but it's a thing. And I can't imagine that whole. So I could see him not wanting to attach himself, being put in a position where he has to attach himself. Now that attachment is broken. So I really have an opportunity to self-inflict some damage and some pain back on me. Yeah, I think also so much of his life had been out of his control, period. You know, like Colonel Parker is signing all the contracts, making Mm -hmm. all the arrangements. Mm -hmm. Like he had, I don't know, he was either just naive or like, I think he just wanted to play music and... Just want to sing. Yeah. And like it didn't, that wasn't what Colonel Parker wanted him to do. It's super weird. Elvis got super freaked out about the karate instructor though. And at one point he had his bodyguard make inquiries about a contract killing. Oh, super good. What would it cost to off this guy? I can fix uh, this. Hold my beer. They never went through with that. Thank (laughs) Thank goodness. The divorce was finalized in October of 73. They shared custody of Lisa Marie. There was a cash payment of $725,000 to Priscilla. She got spousal support, child support, 5% of Elvis's publishing companies, and half of the sale price of their Beverly Hills home. Okay. Yeah, though the marriage didn't work out. Yeah, it wasn't like a super trashy divorce. And they actually left the courthouse hand in hand when it was all over. But I think that was mostly for the cameras. But even like... Here, like even then, like his 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 face is real, getting real puffy, getting real. He's sliding into it. He's sliding into it, yeah. Because apparently, what was causing all of the the puffiness and the pot belly and all that was the combination of drugs he was taking. So some of them caused water retention, which is why his head would swell up. Sure. And many of them caused constipation, which is why his belly would swell up. Ooh. So it was like the perfect combination to feel awful all the time. And he just slid downhill. So in 73, the year that the divorce is happening, he overdosed on barbiturates twice. And one time was in a three day long coma. Oh my. And like, there was no one in his life who was like, dude, you got to stop this. There are plate like Betty Ford is, you know, like we need to, you need to take better care of yourself. This is, you're going to die. And you know, he did. At the end of that year, he was hospitalized for Demerol addiction, and he was in a semi-comatose state when he was admitted. Oh, jeez. Yeah, so by the time he divorced Priscilla, the process that came to be known as Fat Elvis was, like, really underway. And certainly, he was middle-aged now. Like, he didn't have a healthy diet. He was a southern boy. Like, he's, you know... A lot of this really did seem to just be that he was in, on this weird combination. Not, Not weird, but... He was on uppers. He was on downers. He was, you know, and like they were making his body do weird stuff. So drugs are bad. Yeah. Yeah. An abundance of drugs are bad. Yeah. His pictures from his 77 tour are 
really interesting because in some of the pictures, he is absolutely strung out and just he looks painfully swollen and bloated. In others, he just looks like a middle-aged guy making really bad fashion choices. Like, wow. You know, because I think he'd the, he'd get the constipation dealt with and his belly was just a lot smaller. And, you know, he'd, I don't know, like really bad lifestyle choices at this point, which brings us to Tuesday, August 16th, 1977. Elvis was discovered by his living girlfriend, Ginger Alden, unresponsive on How the How old was floor. she? 21, 22. Okay. She was, she was a lot younger. Okay. Mm-hmm. She was not 14, but she was two decades younger. Yeah. He died at the age of 42. Wow. I am 42. I was amazed. Like, I just didn't realize, like, Elvis had a massive heart attack on the toilet at the age of 42. Like, that's really sad. It's really, really sad. (laughs) Really sad. So here's a list of drugs he was known to abuse. Antihistamines, tranquilizers like Valium, barbiturates, quaaludes, sleeping pills, hormones, and of course, laxatives. Just, I mean... We didn't need all that for the trip, mind you, but once you get locked into a serious drug collection, the tendency is to push it as far as you can. There you go. How do you get hooked on fucking laxatives? Well, I don't think he was, but I I mean, but if you can't, yeah, because apparently he he would be constipated for weeks at a time. Yeah. So Priscilla Presley, after the divorce, started a business in Los Angeles, a boutique, clothing boutique kind of thing. Elvis was super supportive. Again, like. Seems like they always had some kind of yeah, connection. He was strung out as hell, but inappropriate. He was really supportive, as it may be. When he died, I think Lisa Marie's inheritance was like Graceland was a critical part of the value of the trust that Lisa Marie would get, and Graceland cost like five hundred thousand dollars a year to maintain, and I guess to staff and all of those things. So it was just bleeding money. So her daughter's inheritance was bleeding money. So Priscilla like swoops in and starts looking at other like homes that have become museums. Hires oh, she a, renos mm-hmm, Graceland. Hires mm-hmm. a CEO. Yeah, it it's open to the public. I think in '82. Anyway, they take this trust that's worth about a million dollars, and by the time Priscilla Presley is done with it, it is a one hundred million dollar fortune and Graceland wow. is the number one tourist attraction in the United States of America. Is it really? I don't know if that's still true, but in the yeah, in the eighties. At 80s, some point it was. It was Whoa. She went on to do some acting in the eighties and nineties. She starred in the Naked Gun series opposite Leslie Nielsen. Yes she did. And she's still kicking it today at the tender age of seventy three. Good for her. Yeah, you'll be happy to know that after, so 75 and 76, right after the divorce, she dated Robert Kardashian for a year. No way. I know you have a keen interest in... um, When did he marry Chris? That had to have been before he married Chris. I would think, yeah. Whoa. Yeah. There is a trashy tidbit for you. Sure, could have changed the world. All right, so trash cans. Let's talk about trash cans for George Jones, Tammy Wynette, and, and all of their ancillary... I mean, that was a lot of that was, was a lot. lot of divorces in you, one story. You packed a lot of divorces. In. Uh, looking at George and Tammy, I don't. I mean, you want to go five just because of the double-barreled shotgun. Yeah, you do. Then maybe you subtract a point for the dining room table out the plate glass window in the night and it's true that's a shining pretty, burgundy Cadillac. Pretty heroic move there. I don't know, and like coming back to visit her on her. 
comatose. Yeah. Like we, you. That's true. Like That's they true. both really had a connection and understood each other. So that would knock it down to three. But you got to give him one for cocaine. And the fighting junkyard dog and old man. <laughs> it's good. I'm going to go four. I'm going to go four. Four seems good. All right. I actually, I, I feel like, I feel like even though the divorce was not particularly trashy, I feel like this is a five trash can story. Oh, she's she 14. Was 14. He was never faithful to her. She moved from Europe to the United States when she was 17 to attend high school while they were living together. And he only married her under an apparent threat of arrest. And once they were married, he basically denied her sex because she had given birth to his child. So to me, that is a five trash can series of events. Listeners, have you stuck around to hear a tender-hearted story about Elvis? Nope. That wasn't it. No, it wasn't it. No, that's pretty five trash canny. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in the... I'm not... I I don't even... Like, okay, the teenage girl thing obviously would be a crime today, but... I'm not even saying Elvis is any kind of villain. I think Colonel Parker is a huge villain. Oh, can he get store. just five trash cans yeah. just for being? Yeah, he can get five okay, Dutch perfect. trash cans set on fire with a <laughs> potentially with a body by him. Like that's the thing. But he he was a he was a con artist who took the world's first rock star and didn't let him make music for almost a decade. Yeah, that's like, insane. What the fuck? When you look at how easily George Jones could have been Elvis, like yes. he should have been dead the yeah. same year, but for love of someone who actually intervened with, no, I'm not going to let your dealers talk to you. Yeah. I'm still going to hide your keys and I'm hiding the lawnmower keys now too. Right. I got your number C cub 10 horsepower, you know? Yeah. yeah. There were just none of those people in Elvis's life apparently. Yeah. He stopped loving her today. That was those were two really good divorces. We hope y'all enjoyed that. We do. This week on Trashy Tidbits gonna be lit. I left a lot of stuff on the floor with the connection of George Jones and James Taylor and the song Bartender Blues and what it has to do with honky tonk angels and stand by your man. I know you have some other stuff on the floor. So join us on Patreon if you want more about these stories. Otherwise, psh, thanks for tuning in. Y'all rock. Keep it trashy. Always keep it trashy. Hide the lawnmower keys, too, if you're making some bad life choices. Yeah. Oh, and you know what? You can't fix them. <laughs> you just can't. Probably can't. If he doesn't want to fix himself, it's been a, there's been a lot of life lessons in this trashy divorces. True. Keep it trashy. Keep it Keep trashy. it country. Cheers, y'all. Keep it rock and roll. Bye. And thanks to you for listening. Trashy Divorces is a Hemlock Creatives production created and produced right here in Atlanta, Georgia by us, Stacy and Alicia, with a little research and writing help from the brilliant Melissa O. Our art is by Sydney V. Smith. That's Sydney V. Smith at carbonmade.com. And our music is used with permission of Ratsy. Check her out at Ratsy's store on Instagram and definitely drop into Ratsy's store anytime you're in Oberlin, Ohio. You can contact us at trashydivorces at gmail.com or find us on the World Wide Web at trashydivorces.com. 
If you need more trash candy in your life, our Patreon community includes some of the very best humans around and thousands of hours of bonus content at every level of support. Join the fun at patreon.com slash trashy divorces. Interested in some trashy divorces swag? Check out our merch shop and Trash Panda Enthusiasm Society at bit.ly slash trashy gear. Want to advertise with us? Reach out to sales at advertisecast.com for more information. And last but not least, come play with us on social media. I keep most of our Trashy Divorces Instagram hopping. Stacy and I share it up over on Facebook, including our Trashy Divorces podcast discussion group. Come join us over there and thanks again everybody for listening. Keep it trashy, y'all.